welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Chris Wiley on June 19th, Lord's Day Service. folks here. I'm working right now on a commentary on the book of Acts, so I'm just getting going. And uh, the title of the, of the commentary is, at least it's the working title, you know how these things go. There are other people that have some say in how things actually get titled, like the people who print the stuff and have to pay for it. <laughs> but uh, the title of the book is The Beginning of the End of the World an eschatological reading of the book of Acts. So, fits in. And I think uh, it's not generally the case that people look at the book of Acts in this manner. I think that most folks look at the book of Acts as sort of a collection of vignettes, events that just so happen to follow uh, the resurrection of the Lord and his ascension into heaven. And also uh, kind of uh, provides some fodder for thought and argument, particularly related to certain ecclesiological questions, how should the church be ordered, and uh, doctrinal controversies, particularly related to speaking in tongues and baptism. (laughs) And that's pretty much where it stops for a lot of folks. Isn't it interesting that you know, those things all happened, and we have uh, all of the legacy that has followed from those uh, things. So I'm not uh, going to, in my commentary, satisfy people who love to debate those matters, because that's really not what I'm going to try to, to you know, work with or look at with regard to the book of Acts. I'm going to actually look at the book of Acts with what I think was the intention of the authors, (laughs) what was actually going on, uh, not just in terms of Luke's outlook, but more importantly, the Lord's agenda and what God was up to with regard to what we see there. So when you start a commentary, you know, one of the things you have to think about is just to whom am I addressing this? You know, when you think about commentaries, generally speaking, who are the primary uh, consumer of commentaries? Any thoughts? Pastors. pastors, generally pastors. What pastors do is they collect those commentaries like trophies, you know, you know, like you have them on your wall. You don't actually read them all the way through. I don't know if I've ever met a guy who actually picked up a commentary and read it all the way through, you know. It, it's basically something that you refer to, like, you know, the Oxford Dictionary. You know, what does this word mean? Uh, lots of uh, pastors, they'll say, oh, that, that's a troubling passage there. I need to get some uh, input from some authorities on how to figure out that particular matter or that particular conundrum that, I'm, that I'm, I've come across in the text. And so, 
You end up with lots and lots of books sold. I would, I'm not, this is, this is, a, this is just a guess. I, this is not like the result of a study. But I suspect that most commentaries, most commentaries maybe have maybe uh, between 5 and 10% of the content of the, cont of the, of the commentaries actually read by any person who buys them. So I thought, well, do I want to be one more book on the shelf? <laughs> or do I want this to be read? <laughs> and by whom? Uh, I thought that I'd like to have it read, be, be something that'd be accessible and readable for, you know, not just pastors, but, you know, people in general. So that's, the, that's kind of the outlook uh, as I approach it. Now, I'm going to be doing things that are, you know, sort of the rigor for commentary, lots of work in language and lots of scholarly input having a lot of fun, got a big stack of books I'm working my way through, and having a lot of fun with, with that. But whenever, you've, whenever you set out to write a book of any kind, you uh, have a kind of a sense of what you're going to do. And the research is, in, is intended to do one of two things. Either prove to you that you're completely insane and you should stop, <laughs> In other words, that sense that you had that I think this is what this is, you know, going to be about. And then you do some research and you discover I had completely the wrong idea to begin with. That was a dumb thought. I'm not going to write that book. Um, or you do the research and it maybe refines and sort of helps you to kind of narrow uh, and focus your, your, your thoughts. And so I have a pretty good sense uh, it's not as though I've never read the book of Acts before, <laughs> uh, and I've preached my way through it uh, more than one occasion. I have a pretty good sense of what's going on, going on. And I also do a lot of literary criticism. Are you familiar with the concept of literary criticism? When we hear the word criticism, we think that a critic is somebody who's just uh, a person who is uh, trying to find fault. You know, don't be so critical. But a critic can actually uh, do other things. A critic can create a praise, right? That was good. That's actually criticism when you say that was good. Crito, which is the word that the word critic is derived from, just means to judge. So uh, a critic uh, is a person who's doing some judging. And as I'm reading Acts, I'm exercising judgment trying to understand what is going on here. And I'm making judgments about what I believe to be going on there and sharing those judgments with other people with the caveat that I'm not, you know, f you know faultless. There are things that I don't see. You know, um, you know if, there, if there are things that I, I, I don't see, then obviously they're not going to be addressed. But, you know, the things that I do see, I'm going to try to, try to get into. Now, when you start off a commentary, you set out sort of the limitations of your enterprise. Uh, a fancy word for this is prolegomena. No one outside of the academy uses that term. Usually, uh, introduction works, <laughs> you know, or prologue. But because this does have sort of a uh, scholarly component to it. I'm using that term, at least in my draft. So I want to read to you that draft of the prolegomena, and it'll give you a sense of what I'm up to, and then we'll 
actually get into the first 11 verses of the first chapter of the book of Acts and see what we can see. So let me begin. This uh, is not terribly long. It's about seven pages long, double-spaced. There's just no way around it. Christianity is based on a miracle. It won't permit itself to be reduced to warm, generous sentiments or even a cry for justice. When you lose the miracle, you lose the faith and end up with something less meaningful, less real. Miracles are hard to handle. By definition, they're infrequent and disruptive. The majority of people who have ever lived have never seen one. And in order to believe one happened, the rest of us have to take the word of those who claim one did. Perhaps this helps to explain our propensity to downgrade them by turning them into metaphors for everyday occurrences. As far as it goes, this is fine as when someone says, spring is like a resurrection after the dead of winter. But if the metaphor replaces the miracle upon which it is based, things have gone too far. Before you know it, you've not only lost the miracle, you've lost the metaphor. Miracles are not part of the natural of order, or not part of the natural order of things. That's why they command our attention. But if we limit our thinking to the natural order, then miracles cannot help appearing unreasonable and even absurd. Is it reasonable to limit reason in this way? C.S. Lewis and others have observed reason can't even explain itself on these terms. But if reason comes from the same place as miracles, then reason itself is a kind of miracle. And this brings me back to the origin of Christianity and the subject of miracles. The reason to begin here when it comes to, the, uh, to this introduction to the book of Acts is because the book of Acts is predicated on the miracle that gave us Christianity. The miracle, in case you hadn't already guessed, is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and what follows, which is just the second part of the same miracle, but we'll get to that. Before proceeding with the commentary, a few comments about the world we live in today and how it differs in important respects from the world we read about in Acts are in order. Beginning with what might seem obvious, our world is very different from the one people lived in in the first century. What probably came to mind when you read the previous sentence is only part of the difference and not the most important part. Advances in transportation and communication have changed the world, but those are not as important as other changes in social life, changes that Christianity itself played a large role in producing. Take slavery for one thing. Most people no longer take it for granted or believe it is legitimate. Uh, or the Industrial Revolution and its after effects for another, a transformation that has produced such a, a surfeit of goods, ob obesity is now epidemic. But I'm still not to the heart of the matter. It's the overall outlook of our time that is fundamentally different, what some people refer to as worldview. The reason that our view is different than theirs is in part due to the fact that we've seen some things that they couldn't see. The rings of Saturn, for example. We're on familiar ground here. We've been told ad nauseum that our ancestors didn't know as much as we do. But what we're not told is that it works the other way around. 
there are things that they knew that we've forgotten. That's why people in the book of Acts seem to have a better intuitive sense of the implications of things that happened in that book. And that's the case for the miracles recorded there, especially the most important and groundbreaking miracle of them all. And this is what justifies this commentary. This is an attempt to see the world the way they did and to understand how a miracle changed the world and is still changing it. Hopefully this won't prove to be as difficult as it might sound because for all of the differences, we have more in common with them than is sometimes supposed. We're human beings and so were they. This is a matter of course, but for those who have been indoctrinated into the illiteracy of our time, it requires a further word of explanation. The first doctrine of our contemporary illiteracy is this. We live in a meaningless world. It is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That's from Macbeth, if you didn't know. Our ancestors, not merely those found in the Bible, but everywhere, thought differently. Everywhere they looked, they saw signs. And while it is true that people have always wanted the world to do what it was told, in the past, people thought that the world or what or who is behind it talked back. Here's an example from the book we're talking about. When Paul is bitten by a viper after washing ashore on Malta following a shipwreck, the natives of the island take it as a sign that Paul is a dangerous criminal who deserves to die. But when Paul doesn't die or even gets sick, they then take it as a sign that he's a people wouldn't leap to either conclusion. Instead, if anything, they might chalk it up to luck or to some unknown but entirely natural cause. For people today, there are no signs, no representations in the world. There are just purposeless forces that we either understand or do not. But because miracles breach the natural order, they can't be explained away as meaningless. They necessarily say something because they evince a purpose coming from outside of nature. That's underscored by one of Luke's favorite expressions, wonders and signs. I think he uses it like eight or ten times in the book of Acts. And he also uses it in Luke. And the other uh, gospel writers hardly use that phrase at all. Like maybe twice or three times, something like that. But even here, we can miss seeing what Luke has in view. We believe, if we believe in them at all, meaning miracles, our tendency is to see miracles as merely signifying the motives of the miracle worker and not much else. If a lame man is healed at a temple gate, as we see early on in Acts, it means that God cares about lame people or sick people in general or less generously, just this lame man in particular. But is that really all there is to it? No, there is more. But to see the more, you need to know how the location of the healing implies something about the class of people to which the lame man belongs. By the way, how many people here know that being lame made you unclean? He couldn't go into the temple. It wasn't just that he was sitting at the temple gate because that's where everybody walked, you know, through to get into the temple. He wasn't allowed in. 
So when he's healed, what does he do? It's the first thing he does. He goes in. What's that a sign of? It's a sign. He's obviously healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus Christ, right? It's a sign that Christ makes you clean. That's a sign. There's a whole lot going on that we miss because we don't know how to read the signs. That's the point. Anyway, I just gave away like chapter three or four. <laughs> this example demonstrates that we need to know what natural and cultural uh, things signify if we're going to see what a miracle signifies. There are layers that need to be unearthed in order to see the significance of a miracle. Here's another way of putting it. If the world is full of signs, supernatural signs layered on top of others, meaning natural and cultural, then the world and the things that happen within it can be read like a book. And like reading a book, it should be read with context in mind. Mixing metaphors here, a book is called a text because like textiles, do you ever make that connection? Text and textiles. It's a weaving. That's why we call a book a text. It's a weaving. That mean, it means it's made up of strands. And reading the strands in context means keeping track of them both as individual strands and as they are woven into a whole. Putting things this way assumes that an author has woven the text, a purposeful creator, in other words. And he uses the world and the things that occur in it to speak. Hearing what he is saying is our task, and necessarily some people understand better than others, as Jesus implied when he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. If the world is a book, people who write history with this in mind are attempting to interpret its meaning. Within the civilization that Christianity helped create, the miracle that gave us Christianity was always the lens for seeing that meaning. The Enlightenment changed that. That's when modern people turned to reason alone, divorced from theology, in a quest for objective truth. The last few hundred years or so has seen an attempt to expunge the last vestiges of Christianity from our civilization. As evidenced recently by the jettisoning of the, prefer, uh, the prefix Ammo uh, Domini, which means you're the Lord, A.D. By the way, when you, when you use A.D., this was a helpful thing that someone told me in the, you know, years ago. You put A.D. in front of the, the numbers. You put B.C. following the numbers. Year of the Lord, 2022, because... You know, that's the way you say it. <laughs> Just so you know, now you know. But, you, you know, a lot of people would fire you for even using A.D. anymore. It's been replaced by, in, in uh, many contexts with C.E. Are you familiar with this? Common era. Just why our time is common remains unexplained. Maybe they just don't want to go there. <laughs> How Christian scholars can go along with this in good faith is puzzling, and I've seen some. Perhaps they merely wish to seem nice. In my footnote, I, I, I note 
that uh, these people should do a little research and, and look into the etymology of the word nice. Do you know what nice originally meant? Stupid. <laughs> no matter, things have progressed, and now postmodern scholars have rebelled against objectivity, recognizing that even in objective history, there's always a subject hiding behind a curtain, usually with a hidden agenda. To super-enlightened postmodernists, the view from nowhere is that fiction. This is the higher, illiter higher illiteracy mentioned earlier. People don't know how to read sides because they don't believe that they exist. At a practical level, those who still believe that the world speaks must concede at least one point. An historian must choose what to include and what to leave out of a history. At any time, a million details can clamor for attention, like that blister on George Washington's heel that bothered him so much when he crossed the Delaware. I made that up, by the way. I, I, I have no idea if he had a blister. But if, let's say he did. Do you include that? That's the point. Is it relevant? Details can add a little color, but if they're beside the point, they're beside the point. But choices concerning significant, if inconvenient, details must also be made. Thomas Jefferson's sexual liaisons with his slave Sally Hemings, for instance, generally goes unmentioned when an account of his role in the writing of America's founding documents is told. But should they be mentioned? Many people think so today. An eschatological reading. The book of Acts is not a view from nowhere, but it is not merely subjective either, just another perspective among many. It tells the story of the ultimate subject, pursuing his ultimate objective, his glory in the world that he has made. Acts, then, is an eschatological reading of the world. That means it is history with the end in mind. Eschatology is a term that is often used to mean the end of history, as in the end of time. And that is the case here, but there is more to it. It can also mean, and does, the purpose of history, as in its goal. This commentary is an attempt to keep both senses of the word in mind as we read the book of Acts. So we've come full circle. The end of history is found in the beginning of Acts with its opening miracle, the resurrection, and what follows of Jesus of Nazareth. That miracle was an apocalypse, a revelation. In case you didn't know, that's what apocalypse means. It just means unveiling. Usually when people hear the word apocalypse, they think, you know, disaster. You know, things crumbling, stuff like that. That can be part of it. Paul, one of the protagonists of Acts, calls that miracle the first fruit, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, of a new creation, meaning there is more of the same to come. When it comes to Acts, anyone who can believe that the miracle, uh, believe in that miracle, shouldn't have difficulty believing in the inspiration of the writer who recorded the event for posterity, meaning, of course, Luke. The book of Acts is that inspired account. It is subjective in that sense. It is a God-informed view of the events on the ground that followed something that had never happened before. 
That doesn't mean Acts lacks a human point of view. This isn't a zero-sum game in which the more God does, the less there is for people to do. God doesn't cancel out the agency of his creatures. He makes their agency possible. So this is why we will delve into the situation on the ground in the first century. Not to sideline God, but to enrich our understanding of what he was up to. And by implication, what he is still up to in our time. So that's my introduction. So I'd be happy to you know, respond to any thoughts or questions you have about that before we dive into to the first chapter of Acts. Okay, well then let's jump into first chapter X. <laughs> We're just going to look at the first 11 verses. Let me read it for you. And uh, I want you to keep a few things sort of in mind as we read. Um, one is anthropology. Anthropology means the study of mankind, human beings, understanding who and what we are. The next uh, term is uh, eschatology, which is the study of the end. Right, And then uh, the third con word or concept is cosmology, which uh, is the study of the, of the order of things. And here in these first 11 verses, each of those matters is addressed. So if you have, that, if you have those things in mind, it'll help you to like, spot them. Like, have you ever like, uh, found yourself maybe doing something you've not done before, and then you then as you're doing it, you're so self-conscious that you're doing something you've not done before. You notice a lot of other people doing it. It's like you thought you were being really different, and you discover that you're just like one more clone. <laughs> I remember driving across America when I was a young man, driving this big Hertz you know, moving truck. And it seemed like every other car was a Hertz moving truck. I was like so very conscious of Hertz moving trucks. I just saw them everywhere. Well, when you have something in mind, you know, like, oh, anthropology. You, you have a tendency to sort of see things that you wouldn't have seen if you hadn't had that concept in mind. It's not eisegesis. It's helping you do the exegesis. It's helping to bring out, not read in. There's a very important thing with regard to this anthropology because it gets into epistemology. So let me go ahead and read that. Another fancy word, study of how we know things. So here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus, there's been some debate whether or not this is an actual person uh, or this is just like a placeholder. Insert yourself here if this is true of you. Theophilus means lover of God. Theo, God, Phila, where get, you know, uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the, the worst named city in America. There's no brotherly love in Philadelphia. They throw batteries at Santa Claus. At, Eagles games. I have dealt with uh, that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized 
with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by, by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what we have here, you know, if we were thinking about this like a term paper, is a thesis statement. Everything that follows in the book of Acts is an explication, application, demonstration, working out of those first 11 verses. Now, um, there are some things to think about here with regard to anthropology, and what I mean by that is pretty big, a lot of things to, to think about. Jesus was fully human. He's the son of God, fully divine, but he's fully human. And there uh, is something that's being told to us by the fact that he has been raised and is uh, uh, lifted up later into heaven. And so that's something to think, keep in mind when you think about you know, the anthropology. There's something about Christ and what happens to him that says something not just about him, but about us. So, you know, there are, there's that to keep in mind. But I think the things that I, that I would like to just sort of get into at this point, and I'm just uh, kind of talking extemporaneously because I think about the things that I'm describing a lot, and I could just go on forever about this stuff. But one of the things that I think is worth noting is how... Uh, the disciples uh, regard Jesus and the fact that Jesus needs to prove to them that he's alive. Now, think about that a little bit. You know, if we go back into the Gospels, there's a kind of throwaway line. Jesus appears to his disciples and we're told, but some doubted. Now, what's going on with this? Um, isn't seeing believing, you know? Apparently not. I, I think one of the things that we tend to do as, you know, modern people is we tend to look back and read into the people who lived before us a kind of credulity that wasn't there, actually the case. We think they were just a bunch of fools who believed any old thing that came along. And they were remarkably gullible. They could even believe a man rose from the dead. That is so gullible. No, these guys are full of doubt. They understood death on a, on a first-hand basis uh, in ways that most people today don't. Have you ever, you know, maybe in this crowd, this, this is uh, not going to get the same responses I've had in other settings, but have you ever slaughtered your own food? 
number of you have, you know what death is like. <laughs> you have killed. I've slaughtered. I've killed animals. Um, and that's just simply something that the vast majority of people in the ancient world were familiar with and were part of their daily lives. It wasn't even a guy thing. There would be housewives who would go out and wring the neck of a chicken just at the drop of a hat. It's just a normal thing to do. Um, so it was part of life, and they knew what happened to dead bodies. They saw it all the time. It wasn't like there was a big mystery. For us, you know, we, we have death presented to us in cellophane in the supermarket, in, you know, these uh, standing refrigerators that keep everything looking fresh. And, we, and it's just so very appetizing to see this, you know. But if you've seen roadkill, you know, that's a very different experience. <laughs> and, and that's really kind of the world that our ancestors were familiar with on a daily basis. So this belied everything that they kind of knew to be the case. Furthermore, um, it's not as though Jews didn't have the sort of hope of the resurrection. We know that a significant party within the first century Judaism did were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the party of the resurrection. Remember, there were other parties. The most significant sort of rival party was the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection. Did I tell you this old preacher joke? They didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> but, the, uh, but, the, but they were the... So here's the interesting thing. I think this is the thing that sometimes uh, we don't note. And, and I'm going to say something that might strike you as very odd. But the party of the Sadducees were the conservatives. They were the old money. The, uh, they rejected all of the newer stuff, including the prophets and the writings. They said, we stick to the first five books, the books of Moses. That's all we got. That's ours. And so they were the old money. They controlled the institutions. They controlled the temple. Um, and the Pharisees were actually more the party of the people. This is the thing that a lot of times we miss because we use the, the term Pharisee as pejorative. That, you know, it's a sort of like a, a nasty thing. You know, you don't want to be a Pharisee. Well, and you don't. <laughs> they, they had their downside. But you know who's closest to the Pharisees today in our society? To, it, it's not us. It's the woke. They are the contemporary Pharisees. Because they believe they can engineer a new heaven and a new earth through legislation and pressure. There was a belief amongst the Pharisees that if we just get everybody to obey every bit of the law for one day, the kingdom of heaven would arrive. You get this at human resources training at your major corporation <laughs> all the time. If we were just all kind of on board with this woke agenda, everything would be all right. We'd all be happy and everything would be perfect. That's a little digression, but uh, this was the party of the resurrection. And remember, at the end of the book of Acts, you know, Paul finds himself in a tight spot. Remember, uh, oh, brother, where art thou? We're in a tight spot. <laughs> so, you know, he's in a tight spot. He's like, okay, I can tell that this room is divided. There are some Pharisees. Now, Paul, Paul, this is something, again, that's kind of missed. Paul was one of the most educated men in the first century. He was a Supreme Court uh, clerk. 
his, he was a student of Gamaliel, who was the, like, like the, the whip or like the, the, the head of the Pharisee party. He was his student. He knew uh, the high priest. Um, he also had grown, grown up in Tarsus, which was a center of Greek philosophy. It was the, a major center for Stoicism in, the, in antiquity. That's why Paul could quote the Stoics off the top of his head. He was also a Roman citizen. You remember when he's arrested in the temple and the, he's brought before the tribune and, the, and the, one of the centurions lets the tribune know this guy says he's a Roman citizen. And the guy's incredulous and he says, I paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm making the translation or sort of the, you know, the equivalent. And then Paul says, I was born a Roman citizen. The guy's like, whoa. <laughs> Everything stops. This guy gets special treatment. <laughs> And then he's, he's, so this guy is hugely connected, reads Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. He's conversant in all of the philosophy of the classical world. He's a scholar of significant stature within Judaism itself. He's connected to all of the key people in Jerusalem. He's a big deal. So uh, in that moment, when he recognizes the two parties, he says, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I'm here for the hope of Israel. And there's, like the, there's a riot breaks out. <laughs> and what is it all about? It's about the resurrection. So there were some people who believed in resurrection. There were other people who rejected the resurrection. Here we have, I think, people who were believers in the resurrection. But the question is whether this is a resurrection, this particular Thing. And Jesus has to prove it, prove that he's alive. And from that point on, throughout the book of Acts, we have a series of courtroom dramas. So you can think of it that way. You know, there's, there are these initial sort of hearings within the temple itself. And the case is made again and again that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, there are implications that those authorities would have been able to, to sort of see right off the bat. One of those being, boy, we made a big mistake having that guy put to death. What would that imply? That would imply that the high court, this is another thing to kind of keep in mind, is that the lower court, the high court of Judaism is the Sanhedrin, but it actually reflects the higher court in heaven. Everything about, this is where the cosmology comes in, everything about the temple reflected the cosmos. There's been a lot of marvelous work done in temple studies over the last 50 years. We know more about the temple and what it meant than people uh, have known since maybe the, the fifth century. It's that dramatic. So let me just describe it to you because this is relevant because when we're talking about cosmology, remember I was talking about you know, cosmology as being one of the important things to keep in mind. Um, well, before I jump to that, let me just say this. You're going to have to, like, give me the time out whenever I'm at the end here because I could talk about this all day. But what I've just demonstrated to you is that when it comes to, you know, what Christ appeals to when it is this moment for him to present himself to his disciples, he doesn't say, how does this make you feel? You feel closer to God right now? How do I know? That Jesus lives. You remember the Gaither, you know, the Gaither song, you know, he lives. 
He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Jesus didn't say anything like that. Am I in your heart right now? How is this all making you feel? You having a kind of heartwarming experience at the moment? No, he's saying, look at those hands. Holes. Watch me eat a fish. <laughs> I have been raised from the dead. No way, no way. I have. <laughs> and then and he presses the case. So the first courtroom drama in the book of Acts is Jesus making the case to his disciples that he is alive. And they come to accept it, believe it. And then what does he say? You will now be my witnesses. Now, when we say witness, give me a witness. Give me a witness. You've been in those, in those revival settings. Give me a witness. Yes, yes. Jesus saves me from drugs. Uh, hey, great. I'm not, I'm not saying that's an, that's, that's an unworthy thing. But this was very much a legal matter. What we, what we see in Judaism is, is something that you've got to get out of your mind. There's no separation of church and state. Get that out of your mind. Our approach is anachronistic. It's all together. When they talk about the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, they're the same dudes. You could go to jail. <laughs> you could be whipped on doctrinal matters. So the witnesses are witnesses in a very legal sense. And there's all the scholarship says this. This is not like, this is my personal experience. I don't know about you. It's not the issue. The issue is, Jesus says you'll be my witnesses, and you are going to go out and tell people some things. One of those things, and this is one of the things that keeps, be, the, the case keeps being made throughout the, the, the book of Acts. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. It implies some things. Let me give you two court, courtroom drama settings. So when, you know, we have that setting or when, you know, the, you know, the apostles are brought before the council, they make the case that Jesus was raised from the dead, been made both Lord and Christ, which implies what? You need to repent. You need to submit to the Lord. He is the one who's in charge. Now, when it comes to the Greeks, Paul does the exact same thing. If you look at, if you get to the, you know, uh, chapter 17, you know, he makes his case. He's, he's in, the, in the Areopagus with the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And he makes the case that, that Gentiles and Jews agree on a number of things. And this is the thing that's really fascinating. They agree on a number of things. Including, this is something that often is, is lost, uh, including the fact that the God cannot be contained in the temple. They believe that already. At least the sophisticated philosophy sort of studying Greeks, they knew that. They also knew that idols were, uh, in some sense, insufficient to sort of contain the divine essence. But what's the punchline at the very end? the resurrection. 
Jesus, they say this man Jesus was raised from the dead, and then he, it, he lays out the implications, or actually he lays out the implications and says the, the resurrection at the very end. The implications are he will judge the world, including you guys. He will judge everybody. So we're here to, to be, you know, Paul is a witness. And by the way, the Areopagus was a court. It was very much a, uh, a court that had been established to adjudicate disputes related to education, religion, and morals in Athens. And those were important matters. That's the sort of thing, or the, the kind of uh, charge, you know, violating the moral standards of the city of Athens that led to Socrates being executed. So that had a court that was it was it was a court that had the power of life and death <laughs> over those who were brought before it. Again we kind of miss that. We kind of think we kind of think of it like as a TED talk. Hey Paul, why don't you come over here and tell us uh, some stuff? Yeah I've got my PowerPoint presentation. You know, that kind of thing. It's all just pure education, but it's not. So throughout the book of Acts, we have one courtroom drama after another. It doesn't always happen in a formal courtroom setting. Sometimes there are one-on-one -on -one encounters, like when we see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But the progression is very much in keeping with the uh, statement here, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so you get this sort of steady movement outward where the witnesses go giving their testimony that Jesus has been raised from the dead and has ascended into heaven. So we've looked at um, the anthropology, at least insofar as the epistemology is concerned. How should that inform our evangelism? Do we create smoke and light shows and tell soppy stories, try to get people crying, you know, kind of sort of soften them up a bit like you do in some kind of weird cult, and then try to influence them in ways that are underhanded? Or do we lead with what we believe, and then we, and then we make our case? That's what we see here, right? It, it has, so now how does this relate to our world today? Well, it relates in all sorts of ways. The true you, is it the little sort of, um, sort of emotional bubbles that kind of burst inside you every once in a while? Is it the sort of emotive self, the passions? I feel like a girl today. Maybe I am. <laughs> you know, completely kind of getting wrapped up in these irrational passions that are actually in some sense uh, destructive. Or is the real you, the part of you that uh, exercises informed judgment, evaluating what's good and what's not good? Now, you can take into consideration your emotional life and psychological health and all of those things. But if the real you is that part of you that's making judgments every moment of the day, but don't we believe that, you know, you shouldn't judge? It's impossible not to judge. It's impossible. You, you know, every, every moment, this morning, you made some judgments about what to wear to church. Made some judgments about who to marry. Made some judgments about where to live. 
And all of those judgments are informed by your understanding of what is good and what's left, not as good. I remember years ago, back when we used to have a thing called Sears. Do you, anybody remember Sears? I remember you'd go to like Sears and they'd have like three versions of the same thing. Good, better, and best. Remember that? Like, you know, the good lawnmower was the crappy lawnmower. <laughs> and then you had to, you know, the, the better lawnmower, which was the acceptable lawnmower. And then you know, the best lawnmower, which was... And so when you would stand there, you'd have to make an, an informed judgment, okay, about, well, you know, are these things, like, uh, tell, you know, is this actually the case? And, you know, is it worth... There, there's another interesting word, uh, uh, you know, evaluation. The word evaluate means to, to sort of uh, discern value. What's this worth? Is it worth as much as they're asking? You're, you're making judgments. You can't get away from it. And by the way, if we're never supposed to judge, how do we interpret Paul's statement? Don't you know that we're going to judge the angels? He's actually saying, why do you go to the, you know, the unbelievers in order to adjudicate disputes in the church? Can't you do that yourself? We should be the best judges, right? I, by the way, when Paul says that, you know, he, he's, he, in this offhanded way, isn't it odd? You know, like, I didn't know that. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize. I got a future as a judge. <laughs> but that's, that's part of what we have here. So our anthropology has to be in touch or sort of reflect the reality that we are judges, that the case has been made to us, and when we talk about judgment here, it's, it, there's a rational component. We, have, we take evidence. But judgments always infer or sort of lead along to action. You know, sometimes people will say, you know, we shouldn't have a religion that's just head knowledge. We need our hearts and our hands involved as well. Well, of course. But the whole approach that you've just sort of outlined belies the fact that if you were acting as a, you know, as a judge, you would know that there's got to be some things to, that follow when you make a judgment. I judge that that car speeding at me at 95 miles an hour will kill me in about two seconds if I don't move. That's my judgment. Hmm. Abstract thought. <laughs> no, there's a reality that you've made a judgment concerning, and if you want to survive, which is a rational thing to want, then you're going to get out of the way. So if we judge... If we agree with Christ that he's been raised from the dead, then there are certain things that will follow in terms of our behavior, our worship, our way of thinking about the world, and all that kind of stuff. So this gets us to the eschatology of all this and brings me to the cosmology. I mentioned a moment ago that the temple was uh, a model of the cosmos. And this is all, this is very... Uh, it's a well-established, scholarly, uh, sort of uh, demonstrated uh, work that I could point you to in different, different places. So we know from Philo and Josephus and many other sort of, uh, uh, sort of intertestamental documents from Judaism that the temple, you know, you have basically three you know, spaces the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. The outer court represented the visible world. The ocean, the land, 
all of that. The inner court represented the visible heavens, what we see when we look up into the night sky. And then the holy of holies, that place where the spirit of God's presence was located, represented high heaven that cannot be seen. Okay, well, I just told you I could go on for, the, for hours about this. So when, when Christ ascends, there are certain things that it implies. One of the things that it implies is that we live in a cosmos that has a vertical orientation, that there is a top. Now, it also, by the nature of the, of the ascension, we know that because he goes into a cloud, and clouds represented what? This is where signs are so important and why you can't understand the book of Acts if you don't know the signs. You remember what occurred when the temple was dedicated, Solomon's temple? Or when uh, the tabernacle uh, was uh, there with, what do you have? You have cloud. Cloud represented the Shekinah glory. So when Jesus ascends and then is obscured by a cloud, it's not just a statement that, well, there happened to be a cloud up there. <laughs> and uh, he went into that, and uh, we couldn't see him keep going. You know, if, 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 if you know, just so you know, in, in the first century, people knew that the, the cosmos, the physical cosmos, was very big. They knew it was enormous. They believed that the earth was an infinitesimal point, mathematically speaking. They didn't think about the cosmos in the way that people that you may have had, you know, tell you, uh, was the case in high school. It wasn't actually. This is one of the things that demonstrates that most modern people are completely ignorant when it comes to the past. Our ancestors knew the cosmos was very big. They didn't know it was as big as we know it is now, but that's beside the point. In other words, if we see Jesus going off at a particular rate of speed, you know, he'd still be going. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, we have a physicist right here. It's still going. My name I mean, just gotten out of the solar system after all this time. <laughs> but, but, that's, but, but you see, that's absurd. That's not the way the, you know, they would have thought about it. They would have known that he had gone out into this holy of holies, the, the place where uh, the divine presence was located. And consequently, uh, there's no sort of like, crude uh, dismissal that we can make of their ignorance of physics. Uh, we just don't know how to read the signs. The signs are there. And what does it mean that Jesus has gone into the cloud? It means he's gone into this holy of holies, the real holy of holies. So what you have is, you know, in the book of Hebrews, we, we see that the temple is a model of the heavenly court of the larger temple, the creation temple. And it's like a miniature. So all of that in mind, that there's a vertical dimension, Christ is now in the holy place and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, tells us something about Christ's authority today in the ordering of the world. And then there's this whole matter of the, you know, will you at this time deliver the kingdom to Israel? And, and Jesus very, you know, he, he says, he uses the both, the both terms for time that, was, that were used in the Greek, chronos and kairos. Uh, the, the dates, chronos, seasons, kairos. Kairos meaning the opportune moment. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of time. So. 
So uh, I'll come back and talk about this some more another time. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you. We pray that uh, this was helpful for folks. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you'll bless uh, uh, what proceeds uh, following this with regard to fellowship and to worship. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.